Hi, hi, hello, my friends. Welcome back. It's been a few minutes. It's been crazy town, COVID, elections. Uh, what else? Starting businesses, most of my ears, in everything. So, um, today's guest, I'm very excited. We went to college together, which is how this all started. But she has really interesting, an interesting perspective. Um, on all this, she was a congressional staffer, um, earlier in her career after law school, she's an attorney. Uh, she worked with Saxby B. Chambliss, I believe when he was a representative, not before he went into the Senate, but, um, a Republican representative and then Senator from Georgia. Um, she then uh, began plying her trade in the legal world. Um, now she has her own fir- firm called will law 38. She is an incredibly intelligent person. A great thinker. Um, she discusses things sanely and rationally uh, on social media a lot, which I appreciate in this day when the discourse is not often, um, not often sane and calm. Um, but I'd like to welcome to the show the great and powerful Mandy Caldwell. <laughs> How are you? I'm great, Sean. It's great to see you. I'm glad to see you doing well and glad looking forward to catching up. Yeah. Um thanks for coming on. It's uh it's sometimes hard to believe how long ago it's been. Listen, I was thinking about that you know, and and anticipating discussing politics with you. I actually was thinking about the end of our freshman year. You probably don't even remember. We were both trying to get out of Mercer's requirement that you had to live in the dorm <laughs> year as well. And you could do that if you had like an excuse from your doctor or something. Yeah. And we were both sitting, uh, I, can't, I don't even remember what office we had to take it to, but whatever office it was, we were sitting out there. And I can remember you saying something about, listen, I'm friends with Joe Frank Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Carsville. He's a governor at the time town baby <laughs> like let's see if we got to get somebody we can we get it <laughs> which is hilarious at 19 or 18 or however like to think about like the gut like what are we going to do get a resolution passed that That's, um that, that was my first political memory with you Sean. oh my gosh that sounds like <laughs> something i would have said back then to be honest um and uh the whole angle and then it's funny too like you don't think about it, it this is true for all of life but it's very it's interesting because I think at that age I I often thought about politicians in general as this sort of I mean for lack of a better term like a class you know what yeah. I mean not just people yeah. that are out doing a job you know sort of like how you would like when you would see your teacher in the in the Walmart like and realize they were a real person yeah or like a celebrity or that teachers uh-huh. people in authority uh-huh. you know before you start to realize what the governmental structure actually is and that technically they work for you right like not yeah. the other way around um, right. which is an important realization I think even just civically speaking uh-huh. right like for people to recognize that that's your they work for you yeah right yeah. um. But also, too, then as you advance in life and you get more experience, and this might be interesting for people that are younger that listen to this, is 
where you start to see all those crossroads. And it's just like, it started for me as like, obviously growing up in Cartersville, which is where Joe Frank, Joe Frank Jr. And all those people are from to then, you know, obviously being in a fraternity with Saxby's son um, and seeing, and of course we didn't see much, but just like when he decided to, you know, well, I guess be a Congressman and then, you know, and then we were out of school, but then running for Senate um, and then, Nathan Deal being the governor of Georgia and he was a Mercer guy and I saw him when he was a US rep at the school all the time and we knew his daughter and you she know was it, one of my three sisters. Yeah. At Mercer we had uh we had Bill Nelson, who's a senator from Florida. We had his son, we had Bo, we had Carrie Deal, um, whose dad was a congressional representative, and then we also had Dean Micah. Oh who's, yeah. Uh, whose dad was a was a rep from Florida. So yeah, we we did have that sort of that inside view. Um, but that's, you know, if it's funny, you know, just thinking about how I ended up in, in politics, I always was sort of interested in it, but it wasn't like my, my family was very politically oriented. Um, I remember we moved back to Moultrie. We lived in Missouri and Birmingham for several years. And my, I was in the fourth grade and we, our social studies assignment was who's your rep and who are your senators? And my parents didn't know. <laughs> Because we had just moved back. Uh, and so they're like, well, you need to call you know, Mr. Billy Fallon. He'll know. And he, Mr. Billy had served in the state house uh, and was good friends with Sam Nunn. And so I mm. sort of, that was sort of my entree into, into politics. And both of, both of Mr. Billy's daughters worked in D.C. So that's the only reason I even knew that was sort of something you could do. But then when Saxby ran, um, the first time he ran, um, I was still in high school and he actually lost in his, his first, his first race. Um, but yeah, he got elected, um, about the time we started college. And honestly, that's why I'm a Republican. Yeah. That's why I was a Republican. Um, that's, yeah, it wasn't any sort of, um, you know, real, I didn't really buy into the, to the platform necessarily. It was just sort of, that's who I could go get a job with in DC. And I knew I wanted to get a job in DC. So, uh, that's how that sort of worked out. It's interesting how it all, how it all, as you learn more, everything kind of shifts too. Well, and it's funny too, because I think that, you know, look, regardless of affiliation and as I've gotten older, you know, there's that, there's a, there's a phrase that people say that's a little bit of a trope or whatever, that the older you get, the more conservative you get. Right. I think the older I get, the more I feel like I'm don't really have a home. Right. It's it's kind of a and, and, you know, so that's the first thing. But then the second thing is, I think the, the evolution, there should be some evolution. Right. Of your of your yeah. opinions over time, because your perspective changes, your your experience changes or, or grows. Um, and, you know, the as I you know, and I've to be honest, I used to be the one that used to get into like fistfights on social media a lot. You know, I would get in and really mix it up hard. And after I got sick and sort of t- like reevaluated sort of life after that, um, I've chosen to just not engage in that way as much anymore. I mean, it happens from time to time, but I sort of realized I wasn't really getting anything positive from it. Like I thought I was, but it really was actually a lot more negative than positive. And so now it's like, and I understand social media. The reality is just is that's not always the place. Occasionally you can have substantive, you know, conversation. And that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy reading the things that you put out because it's very measured. I don't think it comes from an overly biased place. Um, and that's the challenge is most of people's stuff. It's pretty, just raw emotion. Right. And it's not a. It, 
thank you for saying that because that's all that's definitely my goal um i think it is so important you always hear that you're not supposed to talk about politics and i could not disagree with that more i think it is vital that we talk about politics because everything is political yes Um, and to try to pretend that it's not is is it's ridiculous. Um, and I think part of why we've ended up where we are is because we quit talking about stuff and we all went into our silos and social media and cable news, you know, we can choose what we want to hear and it reinforces, um, what we want to believe. And we're not, we don't ever have to face that there's something different out there that might have some, some validity to it. So, I think it's vital that we talk about it. Agreed. Help us a huge amount. But yeah, you're right. You do have to sort of, I did learn sort of, so just to go back a little bit, I I was a Republican. I worked for, uh, I moved to DC after we graduated from college. My my first paying gig was actually as an intern for Congressman Deal, um, who represented the Northern District of Georgia. And I thought, Lord, these are the craziest people I have ever (laughs) talked to in my life. It was awesome. Um, the constituents, then, you mean? <laughs> the constituents. Yeah. No, no offense to your to no. your home crowd. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm sure it's probably that way everywhere. You just saw it in the inside of the. Uh, I will take is that my first, you know, permanent job was with Senator Coverdale, and I seriously did worry that because I was, you know, I was the little girl that answered the phone. They like to tell me that a lot, um, <laughs> and I thought. If I'm about to get nine times because at that point Georgia had nine congressional districts. If I'm about to get nine times the amount of crazy people that I have to talk to every day, this is going to be really interesting. But it it was really, I'll have to say, the majority of the really fired up people who wanted to call and talk were in the ninth district. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, yeah. So that's so that's interesting. So you know, obviously, as you discussed earlier, we we were for sure, politically aware as a college student, right? Which isn't always the case either. Like a lot of people just don't care. Right. And, and it's funny, another classmate of ours, a guy named Joseph Sumner, who's an attorney as well, sent a picture as I was engaging on social media with something the other day. I saw it. I was at that same rally. Yeah. (laughs) At at a picture at a Bob Dole rally. And of course he was in the same, not at Mercer, but he was also in my fraternity at another school. And so he came to Macon and we of course like turned out and drove. And it's just, and it's funny because at that point, like, again, like, and when I was young, I was one of those people too, that I was, when I was younger, I was, I considered myself a Republican. Right. And I, and I think again, to me, this is probably controversial, but now I look at politics a lot. Like I look at religion, it's something in which you're, and again, I know there's a negative connotation here and I don't mean this in a negative way, but it's almost like you're indoctrinated into it because it's your family's position. It's your your social position, right? Like you're born, your parents' religion is probably going to be your religion, right? Your parents' politics will probably be your politics because that's what you're exposed to. Um, I didn't really know. I hadn't really thought. I mean, honestly, like, I don't think I really thought about it right from a position standpoint. It's just like, Oh, this is what I am. And then my big thing was in college about halfway through, I through his history class. I started to do, I was exposed to Bobby Kennedy. And then I really dug in on, him, not Jack, um, but Bobby and his speeches and th- sort of those things. And that's when I really started to explore, like, what do I believe? Right. Not what have I been told? Not what have I. 
And that's when the shift started to happen. But it's interesting that if you allow yourself to, it doesn't mean, again, it's my argument with religion. It's like, I'm not asking you to throw your principles out the window, but allow yourself to have a dialogue. Right. 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 And because like with faith, like politics, it's like, if it can be, if it can't stand up to challenge, there's a problem. 100%. 100 percent that's and you know it i think too part of what's changed and, and I, i'm sort of exactly where you are i don't feel like i have a home necessarily um i, I have always been pro-choice um i have always been a more moderate you know falling on the more moderate uh, end of of either scale um, and there used to be a place for me and the Republican, you know, I was, I, I worked for Coverdale then I worked for Saxby, um, and bought in all in. And I was, there was a place for me. There was a place for a pro-choice Republican back then when John McCain, uh, was nominated. I was thrilled because, you know, his, his politics really sort of lined up with mine. And ironically, what really started my departure from the Republican party was, figuring out that Sarah Palin was a ding dong. And I found it insulting um, as a woman that the Republican party thought they could nominate somebody so completely unqualified and that I would buy in just because she was a woman. Um, And that's sort of, that's what sort of started it for me was kind of like, wait a minute, these people don't necessarily respect me. Um, I was a communication major and uh, our senior year uh, was, you know, 96, 97. So we had the election of 96. And uh, so we did a lot of of studying on that, on that election that year in our communications classes. And I, you know, I wrote a huge senior paper on the gender gap in the Republican Mm -hmm. party. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was always sort of aware and it it always bothered me. Ironically, I was always a huge Kennedy fan too, Sean, Mm. Uh, just a quick aside. It's a great story. Uh, when Saxby <laughs> was in the house, he and Congressman Lewis decided to honor uh, Hank Aaron on the 25th anniversary of the you know, record-breaking home run. So they uh, did a joint resolution. We invited Mr. Aaron to come to D.C. Wow. Planned this huge reception. Uh, yeah, it was this big deal. We'd all been working on it for for months and months. The day arrives. Oh, sorry, we. I kept asking Mr. Aaron if there was anybody he wanted to invite to the reception, or not him, his assistant that I was talking to. <laughs> and no, 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 there wasn't anybody. And the day before the reception, she calls me and she says he has three people he wants to invite. And I'm like, okay, great. Who are they? Teddy Kennedy. Wow. He, I can do that. He's already invited. Like I can do that. That's <laughs> no big deal. Um, Betty Curry, who was Clinton's secretary. You might remember her from the impeachment in, stuff. Indeed. She was one of the big witnesses in that. Yep. And the third was Ethel Kennedy. Mm. Wow. Now that I thought, how in the world am I going to find a way to invite Ethel Kennedy to this reception the day before? So uh, Senator Kennedy's office was nice enough to kind of help me out and gave me a number for her foundation. And I called the foundation and told them what was going on. And they said, oh, well, we're not sure where she is, but we'll, you know, whatever. Called me back a couple hours later and said Ethel Kennedy was coming to this reception. And Sean, I got up out of out of, out of my chair and I ran into Saxby's office. He just happened to be sitting in there. And I was losing my <laughs> mind. I was jumping up and down. And he's just like, 
why are you so excited about a Kennedy? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So the next day, Mr. Aaron and his wife come. They read read the resolution on the floor. Sean, you have never seen, I mean to tell you, 435 members of Congress lost their mind. We had to order extra security. The man could not walk the halls of Congress because all these congressmen were just mobbing him everywhere he went. So it was a disaster. <laughs> and then, so when they cut, I had to send out an email over to every scheduler on Capitol Hill that said, do not tell your boss not to bring anything to this reception. We are not here for him to sign autographs. <laughs> You're here to honor him. We want him to enjoy this reception. So no, don't bring anything. So we get to the reception and here comes Paul Ryan. This was when he was like, before he was Speaker of the House, he was like a freshman member of Congress and he has two baseballs in his hands. Oh gosh. <laughs> I walked right up to him and I said, I'm sorry, Congressman, you're going to have to hand me your balls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so many jokes <laughs> that are in my head right now. But that's a, but isn't that also like a great sort of, I mean, to me, there's, that's a great anecdote about, again, just regular people, right? And just, cause I've had the honor of meeting Mr. Aaron as well. And I mean, he is a, a Titanic figure, right? Like you just, I mean, and, and let's go just beyond sport. Like if you dig into his impact on like what race relation in this country was like when he was going through that and the fact that he, people were threatening to kill him for hitting a home run of all things. And he refused to not play, you know, he's like, if that's what I'm going to go, right? Like we can't, I mean, just the courage. I mean, that's why it reminds, when I think about people like John Lewis and these people that say, it's one thing for me and a bunch of random people to snipe at each other on social media, but I'm talking about there are people that literally put their lives, right? Like, and, and I don't know that if a regular person can wrap their head around that, but you know, when John Lewis went and walked the Edmund Pettus Bridge, he knew there was a possibility that he might die. Yeah, a, a likelihood even. And, and, know? and you know, and that's just to me, and, and I'm not, yeah, there are people from all, both sides, right, where this kind of thing applies. I'm just, we're talking about that. So that's where I'm, but, you know, again, like Ethel Kennedy, I mean, you know, obviously she wasn't just the wife of Bobby Kennedy. Like you talk about another Titanic figure, a massive human rights activist, like. And I can't explain to you, Sean, so she came and my Kennedy loving brain nearly <laughs> melted. Uh, she could not have been more genuine and kind and down to earth. That was, I knew at that point I was leaving the Hill to go back to law school. And a friend of mine, my friend Leslie and I had contemplated going to work in Nantucket that summer. Uh, so we were talking to her about it. And she gave us her home phone number. Oh my gosh. If you end up in Nantucket, you call me because I'm just right across the water and you girls need to come visit. I mean, just completely down to earth. And I will say that's one thing I definitely learned working on the Hill is you can certainly tell the people who have real power because they don't walk in and announce it. <laughs> the ones who come in like a, you know, like a little banny rooster walking on their tiptoes and proclaiming how important they are, are not. And it's just, you learn, that's one thing. That's a good lesson. So, I mean, just that one story tells you why, why should like everybody should go work on the Hill. Cause you get to meet Hank Aaron, tell Paul Ryan to hand you his balls and hang out with Ethel Kennedy in one day. Like where in that, where else in the world could that happen? 
<laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, I, I'll fire the first shot. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not going to turn this into a thing where I get into it, but you know, that's always just been one of my things with the, with the current president is, you know, if you have to tell people constantly how great you are, you're probably not all that great, right? Like you, you, there's a, there's a, it is, it oozes off of people that are, are truly just, great. And, and being exposed to that, you know, working in DC, I mean, I met Lech Waleska, who like brought democracy to the Czech Republic, you know, like, and did, did, I mean, he didn't even ask for a certain kind of tea. Like he was drinking <laughs> Waffle House coffee that we brewed in the front office. I mean, you just, yeah, that's just a huge, huge lesson that you learn. Well, um, one of my, one of my wife's heroes is Madeline Albright. And, yeah. um, you know, she got to meet her once and it's, it's funny how this story you're telling it's like, I think again, with people that are truly great, that's kind of a universal story. She was like, again, like we're on a global scale. You're talking about someone that is a global figure, right? Has quite literally impacted the course of, of society, not just in the United States, but across yeah. the world the the women you know obviously being in that job you know with her being secretary of state you know as a one and all that stuff and breaking glass you know like Kamala Harris is now done and those sorts of things like there are these touchstone type historical moments that are really extraordinary and Holly just said it's like she could not I mean you want to talk about if there's a person in the pantheon that literally could puff their chest out and walk around like that like that's someone that it would be justified right. and not like that at all but I, and it's I think what they have in common is they are genuinely genuinely interested in other people and in other people's stories, um, and so they they do a lot more listening um, than talking. And that's sort of, you know I, my Facebook approach. Um, like I said, I do think it's so important that we talk about it. And so I try, there's, there's also a, a it's not a legal fiction, but it's a, it's a tool we use. Um, when you file a motion for summary judgment, you have to file, it's called a statement of material facts, not in dispute. It's so it forces you to really look at your case and come up with the things that we all agree on. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's, the date of death. <laughs> I was going to say now is that document just like one paragraph? Like I would feel like these days that's like, yeah, I have had cases where that was it. Yeah. But other times there are, you know, <laughs> there really are certain things that happened that we all agree on. And so that's really, I try a lot when I'm talking about stuff on Facebook to try to approach it like that because get people out of their silos a little bit. And let's talk about the fact that, there, there is a legal process for how votes are cast and how votes are counted. And it has been like that for however long that state legislature has had that law on the books. And I mean, that's just a statement of material fact, not in dispute. And if we can at least get there, that at least gives us a jumping off point to then have a discussion about things. Well, and I feel like for me, and th again, this is not meant, I just, what I've said all along is, is, and, and I want to come back to the, your history a little but while we're on this, um, for me, I feel like the goal of everyone, regardless of ideology, right, should be maximum participation in the process. 
Amen. Right. Like I don't, you know, my whole thing is, is like, I want everybody to vote. I'm not trying to say, oh, if you live in Midtown, I want you to vote. But if you live in Hayhira, I'd rather you not vote. No. It, it felt a little bit after it, today's the four year anniversary of uh, Trump getting elected. That's my time hop was full of really fun memories uh, <laughs> this morning. And I can remember waking up that next morning and I had sort of fallen out. I had fallen off the political wagon after Palin got nominated. Um, the next thing that really sort of turned me off the next breaking point for me was after Newtown mm. uh, when mm. absolutely nothing was done with gun control after those babies were shot in their classroom. I, I'm done. I'm done. Um, and so when I moved to Florida, I actually registered as an independent. Um, which didn't work because Florida has closed primaries. You can only only vote in the primary you register for. So I did eventually have to have to go back to being a registered Republican so I could vote in the local races because everybody around here is a Republican. But, you know, that's really sort of I I think because like what we talked about with faith and indoctrination, because I wasn't necessarily so indoctrinated, I was able to take a more rational look at what was happening and say because it was not my identity and that like we operate so much now on your political affiliation is so much a part of your identity that it does i can understand why it's hard for people to to break away from that um i can understand that but we have to find a way to make that happen um or else we're just going to keep the status quo um I had another point when I started that, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> you'll, you'll remember. So, but about Newtown, like, you know, for me, it was the same. Strangely, that was for me too, like a little because of, you know, Sandy Hook, which was Newtown, right? Is, is, um, that to me is the first time in my memory. And that was 2011, 12, mm-hmm. something like that. Like it's been eight, nine years ago. Um, that to me was the first time I remember. And this ties into your thing about statement of facts, not in dispute, where I remember there being a mass movement of people suggesting that, like, it didn't happen. That's when I feel like the whole crisis actor thing started. Um, And that, to me, was just heartbreaking, not for political reasons, but just because, look, man, these are these second and third graders are not political they're not in a party they're dead and their parents have lost a child regardless of what they you know their political affiliation is and how in the world are we politicizing this like i don't have a problem politicizing the remedy right if we want to go and have a political conversation about the remedy right that's fine but politicizing or even deny i mean honestly it to me and this is something that I have that talk about your world expanding is marrying a Jewish person, right? And 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 starting to and over the last fifteen years, learning and 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 having conversations and discussions and and participating in that culture. That's Holocaust denier stuff, right? Like that's where you start to, for political reasons, minimize or erase unbelievable tragedy because it's politically it's not politically expedient for you to recognize that it's a thing and you know that people like that's when i'm with you that's like when a break happened because these are people that you and i know these are people that you and i grew up with 
we know that they are good, kind, loving people who, if they were critically, rationally thinking about these things, they wouldn't do that. So why are they willing to listen to the Alex Jones of the world and just swallow it hook, line and sinker? Like what happened? How, you know, and it's, I was listening to a podcast. Oh, I meant to say at the beginning, everybody should drink every time I say I was listening to a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Do a lot of podcasts, but I was listening to a podcast this week with Stacey Abrams. Um, and it, I think it was with Ezra Klein. I think it was on Vox. And it, you know, the question was, how do we solve this? How do we get back to, to some sort of reconciliation? And she talked about the fact that when she was in the state house, they had to pass a budget. So there was, they had to have some, you know, there was, they had to come together to get that budget passed. So they were forced to work together. And I, we just got it. You know, we went from, you and I are old enough to remember when we got our news from, you know, the three white guys at, you know, six o'clock every night. Um, and there's certainly things that are good about our, our news expanding, but at least we had a truth. And at this point, we can't even, you know, come to a consensus on what is truth. And that's, I think it's really a fundamental thing that we all need to focus on um, and that we all need to work on. Um, and, you know, it gets back to why why I do talk about it, um, talk about it on Facebook. And I will say, I do, like, when I have conversations with people, you can tell pretty quickly if they're, you know, QAnon uh, supporters or they're just spouting off Fox News talking points. And I will stop them and say, do you, is Fox News your primary news source? Um, And if they say, yeah, I will kindly say, then there's no point in us continuing because you choose to live in an alternate reality and I'm going to choose not to join you there. There's just, there's, there's no way we can have a discussion. Yeah. And there's even degrees of, you know, uh, of egregiousness, even in that world, because even beyond Fox news, which, you know, it's interesting just to, cause I, am a coverage flipper. I mean, I obviously have my own bias because part of our income comes from CNN, but, um, you know, but election night, like we bounced pretty hard between Fox, MSNBC and CNN, you know, we just were kind of, and even then it's interesting to sort of see now, like there's even been a little pivot at Fox a bit, right. You know, just, Heard, I haven't watched it, but I have heard that their news division, and that's see, that's another thing that people don't—they won't differentiate between the news division at Fox, right, and the Tucker Carlson's of the world. Hundred percent. And this is a thing I say all the time because we know some of these people, right? These are my wife's contemporaries, right? Like that work at these places, and I tell people a lot, like, listen, the reality is this: is if you. There is a there is a and this is part of the problem, right? It's just people being able to tell the difference between commentary and news. But it is is if you go and read print at Fox, and it's the mm-hmm. same thing if you go read print at CNN, or you go like those print journalists, those are people that are actually trying to they are pursuing the truth. Right. Right. Like right. they are they are spending and there's people you don't know. You read the byline, you're not gonna recognize that person's name. Right. But those right. are people that are out in the field trying to tell the story as truthfully and honestly as they possibly can. Um, and that's why when I do, if because if you look at 
commentary in an AB scenario. Like if I look at talking heads on this channel versus talking heads on that channel, you can absolutely see the bias and the divide. If you go yep. and read the print stories, right, that go out, they generally line up. There may be little things here and there, and it might be headline writing might vary because they still are trying to attract an audience. If you get right. to the, again, facts not in dispute. If you get into the meat of the story, the facts line up because everybody's getting the same facts because that those print writers are not really in the opinion game. And also it's important, and I tell people all the time, is whenever you click an article, especially if you're going to share it or send it to me, <laughs> right up at the top, generally under the byline, it'll say this is an opinion piece. This is whatever. Right. That is not a news story, right? That's, I think we, we've got to do work. Um, I mean, we got lots of work to do, but I think part of our part of the work that we need to do is to help educate people on how to be smart consumers. Mm -hmm. um, one of one of my posts I made this week on Facebook was uh, sharing, um, and I can't remember the organization that puts it out, but it's that chart that charts the different news organizations and oh, shows yeah. their bias, like on a, a on the scale and. You know, even just that, like be aware of of what you're consuming so that, you know, if you want to get spent, get spun, we all do. Like there are times where I want what I am currently in fuego about. I want somebody to reinforce it for me. So that's fine. But recognize that's what you're doing. That's my mom. I was with my mom a couple of weeks ago. She's on her phone. She says, well, I didn't know Oprah got married. <laughs> <laughs> What are you talking about, Mom? Well, it's right here. It's all it's on my phone. I said, "What site are you looking at?" It's like Weight Watchers. Oh my gosh! Are you sure? And she said, "Oh no, it was actually an ad on the way." Like, but just helping people navigate through that system, I think, would be huge. Well, it's the challenge we have now, because as you talked about, like, and again, for the youngsters out there, when you were talking about us being in college, right, at the early days, there was no internet, right? There wasn't this... We didn't have email. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we were maybe juniors when Bearnet came out or something like that, when we first started email, sophomores or juniors, but... Um, <laughs> you know, that's really the challenge. I mean, the internet, obviously, is, you know, it's 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 a double-edged sword, right? Like, access to information is at a, 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 a point where it's astronomically, you know, more than in any time in human history, which is great, but it also opens the avenue for a lot of unvetted, you know, things that any old body, you know, can, I mean, again, it's sort of like, you know, I say this a lot and, and this happens and this isn't unique to Republicans. I mean, this is, I see this equally from the left, right. Is it, or the extreme left is someone just writes up something that is, clearly factually incorrect um it's 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 some it's some facts that are generally altered mixed in with a ton of supposition and opinion and it hits those buttons you talk about right like i want to be reinforced i want to echo chamber myself a little and it gets a hundred thousand shares or you know it springs to life and people actually weigh that with an equal amount of 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 gravitas and of accuracy as again a report that's published by cnn or fox or the ap or the bbc or any place that has 57 sources yeah i mean and it's those are not equal right it's like they're not it's just it, 
that's like me. Like if I just write up something I think, right? Like it's and I'm all of a sudden on par with a major news organization or, you know, whatever. And and that's the other thing that's funny to me about just conspiracy theory in general, because I feel like in prior history, that was a lot easier because we didn't have access to everything. Like my biggest pushback now about people like, again, we'll get into this, but talking about everything that's surrounded voting in this election and that thing, it's like, do you really think in 2020 that there is a national conspiracy amongst disparate legislatures? So first of all, state governments run elections, right? Right. And even in Georgia, where every phase of it is controlled by the Republican Party, we've got a Republican right. governor, we've got a Republican secretary. Long before Trump was ever, uh, you know, on a ballot. Yeah, but it's like, so you're telling me that there are people that are smart enough <laughs> to fair enough to manipulate multiple state legislatures, right? That are actually political in political opposition to them. And not get caught. Right. Like you right. can't dude. senators can't go proposition sex with strangers in airport bathrooms and not get caught. Right. 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 Like, right. you know, and you're telling me that, that again, it's just the whole idea of this information access is, is that the global and I, and again, I'm sure there are things that the government does that are, uh, and people make mistakes. Yeah, and but people screw up. But you just but we just start getting on a level of like if you want to point at and say uh there was an error, well of course there could be errors. That's why we have recounts, that's why we do all the that's why these mechanisms are in place. But, you know, a massive manipulation of the system like based on an in a, like that's, you know, Occam's razor. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> For those of you that don't know what Occam's Razor, Occam's Razor is, Occam's Razor says that all things being equal, the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. Um, yeah, I mean you're 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 attributing a felonious criminal intent to, for the most part, low level election workers who low level government workers who, by God, they take pride in their work. You know, I've um, in. 2018, we had a recount um, in our Senate race here in Florida, and uh, you have to have a lawyer present at the recount, and each side has to have a lawyer present. So I actually went to observe the recount. And so I can tell you, like, they wheeled locked boxes that had super special seals on them that you could tell if they had been opened. And they wheeled those boxes out with a bailiff who had been, you know, standing guard over them you know, the whole time. They opened them in front of everybody. They you know, ran them through this machine. Like it, these people take pride in their work. Um, and we should respect that. Like they want to do a good job. Um, and it's, it, yeah, it just. It's nonsensical. It really is. Well, CNN actually did a really great piece. And now I can't remember if it was Pennsylvania or it might have been Wisconsin or Michigan, but they had people there and they actually walked. They had video and they walked through the entire sort of life right. life cycle yeah. of a ballot. Right. And if you just again, it's like if you just watch it, it's very clear that this is not like, you know, 
George, who on during the weekdays is a plumber, is putting boxes of votes in the back of his pickup truck and right. driving it over. And then Sarah, who is a nanny who volunteered, then has un- can take it behind in an alleyway and open them up. And, you know, then this is this is not how this works. I mean, this these things are treated w- like with an, an amazing amount of care. Right. It's, it's all, it was almost like a sanctity. Yeah. Sean. Like, I mean, they, it was, they took this so seriously and it's my dad and I have had uh, many a conversation because he was, he was sort of buying into the whole mail in voter fraud and, you know, arguing with me about how easy it would be for these people to, to create these ballots and, you know, forge all these votes and mail them in. And I said, dad, you we can't get people to vote. <laughs> right. Do you really think they're going to be motivated to go out and do that? Like, just no. And, you know, part of it stems from the fact that I remain an optimistic person. Me too. Me too. <laughs> and I really, truly do believe that most people are out to do good rather than harm. And I just, I, I just, it doesn't, makes sense to me that somebody would go to that much effort to create, you know, commit a crime like that. It just, I just don't, that makes sense. So we had mentioned earlier, and I'll say this is you're not an election attorney. So everything that you say in the process <laughs> yes. of this is not a legal opinion. It's just me and you talking. Um, but can you, so that's actually honestly one of the big challenges right now that the Trump administration is, is, is tr- trotting out is what they want to attack is the, is the lack of access for observers since you participate, and I know this was limited to your county in this particular scenario. I don't know if you've worked prior elections or ever volunteered before, but can you talk about like how the observer, pro- like, because because it's my understanding that it's representatives from different groups. It's not just one person; it's several people. Like in your experience, what was the how did the observe what was the observer process like? Okay, yeah, in each state, like you said, and it's not each state governs their own elections. And then even within the state, typically each county sets its own rules. Um, So it does vary quite a bit, but the systems are sort of universal. Um, But yeah, each, uh, each party has a lawyer. Um, Each party has like a designated person who speaks um, for the party and then sort of depending on how big the room is, that sort of thing, there can be additional people in there as well. Um, and votes are, you know, I'll tell you how in Florida, when we walk out, like we have a, it's an old Scantron, you know, with a pen and paper and we fill it out. And as we walk out, it goes through a scanner that's called a vote tabulator and it tabulates our vote at that moment. It's then dropped. It's, you know, it's all encompassed in one big plastic machine. But our our actual paper ballot is dropped into a plastic bin that's locked in there. Once that bin is full, it's you have to match up the number of ballots that are in that bin with the number that's on the machine that says has been counted with the number of ballots that the people who have issued them like those three numbers have to match. And once that happens, they take that, they lock it, they put that super special seal on it, and they put it in a back room. And that process just continues all day. Um, 
And then when it comes time to vote, I mean, to count the votes, like that's why Florida is so fast. That's why they can do that so quickly. Um, also, Florida processes mail-in votes and early votes as they come in, too. So that's sort of, you know, on election night, everybody's like, well, why was Florida? Why do we know Florida so quickly? That's why. Um, and also it's worth noting, and I don't want to point fingers, but um, this is where legislators start to litigate those rules to a degree. And you get some partisanship and some political gamesmanship of saying, oh, well, we're not going to let you count votes early so again, Florida's fast, but in a state where like, where it's like, no, you have to count mail-ins last and you can't start counting them until election day. And that's why you get a protracted process, right? That's what, and that's what happened in Pennsylvania. Right. Is, yeah, and this year's sort of an anomaly in general because of the pandemic and because of so many mail-in votes. The Pennsylvania Secretary of State saw the number of votes that were being requested and said, holy smokes, we're going to be hit hard can we please count these early? And the state legislature said no. And it's been, you know, it's still in, in litigation. And then same thing, like when the, when we, the news started breaking about the delays with the post office, they said, can we count votes that are received after election day? Those votes are being held separated. There's, there's all sorts of processes in place for all of these things. And, and I'm not, you know, like you said, I'm not saying that mistakes don't happen. I'm not saying that there aren't bad apples in every group, but what needs to happen in those situations is the people who have that evidence need to come forward and say, this is what happened. It needs to go before a judge and it needs to be litigated. And so far when they've done that, um, there was a case in Pennsylvania where they were trying to say people weren't allowed to observe Well, when they had to go in front of a judge and actually offer up some proof, it came out. I think the the Trump lawyer's quote was there were there was non zero. He's like, were there so were there not people in the room or not? The Trump lawyer said, well, there was a non zero number of people in the room. What their argument was, they just weren't allowed to stand as close as they wanted to stand. Right. Because they're practicing social distancing and. (laughs) <laughs> trying to right. trying to do that because we have a situation and that and was it, and that was and for the, both sides yeah it was it was enforced against republicans and democrats right so, yeah it's and what becomes irresponsible and what is a comment upon us as citizens that gets back to the whole sources of media is it it begins to undermine democracy when you spread these stories that have no basis in fact. And so what we have to check ourselves on is, you know, you get that dopamine hit yep. when something confirms what you believe. You got to learn how to stop and evaluate this article before you share it with all your friends. That's, that's from this point on, that's going to be part of being a responsible citizen. Yeah. And and to me, that's another like super red flag. If you're ever engaging on social media, like the minute anybody, anybody starts to link bomb, right? Like a conversation, like instead of actually engaging with you and talking about it, everybody's seen this in a Facebook thread. You get this flurry of like six articles back to back where they don't say anything. They just post articles. And I'm like, man, I don't, I've got Google. I don't need you to like, we're talking here, right? Like I don't, you know, if now oftentimes I think it's important to reference 
data, right? right. Like that's important. Right. But again, vet your data, right? right. Like this is the whole yeah. cr- crux of it. And I think that a lot, another question that people are having right now, Sean, is how is this different from Bush v. Gore? Oh, like God. why? Yeah. Why are these? Why are these separate things? Bush v. Gore, all the votes were counted, and in Florida, if the margin is, uh, I think it's 0.5 percent. That's what it is in Georgia. There's an automatic recount. Correct. So they did the automatic recount, and once they did that, the margin shrank even more, and. At this point, it became clear that there was some confusion with ballots. They were said, well, those of us that are old enough to remember all of this will remember the hanging Chad and the pregnant Chad. I think that was uh, West Palm Beach. Where, it was, yes, Broward, Broward County, yeah. Where they voted, they took a stylus and poked through a perforated hole in the piece of paper. And what happened was, as the day went on and the trash can under the ballot got full, sometimes the the chad, the little hanging piece of paper, would not fall off. Or people didn't press it hard enough, and so it would become what they called a pregnant chad. Uh, and so they, they found all these ballots when they tried to run them through. Because that's the other thing. I didn't finish talking about the process. When when ballots are run through a scanner, if if there's something wrong with them and for some reason they're not read, there's a, a group of people who looks at them and says, can we determine the voter's intent? And so, again, it's a Democrat and a Republican um, who look at it together and have to reach a consensus as to whether you can tell what that voter really wanted to do. So there was a very specific... Um, it, it was the chats, and then there was also a ballot, I can't remember which county it was in, where it, the way the ballot was lined up was confusing. Um, and so a lot of people either undervoted or overvoted. So, like, mm. they would vote for Senate and congressional races, but they wouldn't have voted for the presidential race. So there were very specific examples of voting anomalies in Bush v. Gore and the margin of difference was so small that it would have made a difference in the election. Like it could have changed the election results. I think it was ended up being like 500 votes or something. That Yeah, and I think it was 1,800 maybe when it started. I mean, 1,800 out of millions, like a tiny sliver of, right. Right. of difference. So that's, that's the other part of the legal standard is it's not just that you know, in all in all cases, when you when you sue somebody, you can't just say they did something wrong. You also have to say <laughs> I was hurt by it. And so right. that's a part of these these cases, too, is, you know, not just that Karen and, and Joe have taken all these ballots and burned them, <laughs> um, you know, only the Trump ballots. Um, right. They burned them all. But in addition, it would change the results of the election. And so what we're seeing in most of these states is that margin is getting bigger and bigger. I think typically the average change when they do a recount is like maybe 300 votes. I think that's right. Yeah. That switches. And so, you know, it's, it's a pretty high legal standard to get over. Yeah. And I think too, the other thing about fraud and again, this idea that fraud is this thing, right. And this is again, largely rhetoric, right. These are just where someone says something and people believe it's true. There have been, for time immemorial, right? Like even long before every single election, there are charges of fraud. There are people that say, I didn't get whatever. And 
it literally almost never happens. Right. And right. when even when it does happen, it is so minuscule, right, that it's not going to flip the election again. It's where, oh, it's 10 votes against right. a 50,000 vote margin. You know what I mean? Right. Or something along. The, and that's, again, that's another thing, too, why, and I can speak to this a little because of the media side, why people don't actually understand. And I and I couldn't believe it when somebody made this comment, but about news organizations calling elections. And it's like, why does CNN get to say who's the president? And I'm like, they're not. But right. what happens is, is what you don't understand is, behind, and this is Fox and all of these places, right? You see Anderson Cooper or Kornacki or um, Brett Baer or whoever these people that are talking in a back room somewhere where the working people actually are there. And I'm not. And again, it is not some junior journalism student. It is people with PhDs in statistical analysis. It's people that do this for a living that they bring in, you know, for this specific purpose that are not only looking at the official report of the state election commission, which they have access to, and you do too. You can go look it up. It's not a secret. You don't have to have a password to get into the vote count webs on the sex states website. Um, And they are also looking at historical trend data and from counties and how things usually fall. And it's actually a mathematical process of saying, we know what the count we have. We know what's outstanding and we know how these things have fallen over prior years. So we can make a mathematical statistical um, conjecture because none of this is official until all the votes are certified, which, by the way, for every election doesn't happen until two weeks after you right. used to find out every on election. State, every state has a different deadline for that. Too, yeah, so. yeah. But, you know, you find out you hear about it on the news, but it's not really official. Right. Until everybody certifies their vote, which happens, which was what the again, going back to Bush v. Gore. I mean, that was the whole thing is that Florida kept asking to push back their certification deadline because they knew they were trying to cure these ballots. And that's another thing people don't understand. They think curing ballots means changing ballots. And it's like, no, it's not. It's about making sure that could be anything from your point, which is like we can't tell the mark to sometimes it's triggered by. And I and this was in that CNN piece where one person saw. They happened to get two ballots from the same area where it was the exact same name, but altering social security numbers, right? Like different socials. And the poll worker actually, and this is so funny because this is how it works. And again, like when people talk about fraud, people raise their hands and that people are looking and walking around and making sure. And when they raise their hand and say, I've got a problem, the Republican guy runs over, the Democratic guy runs over, this a person who's a representative of the voting commission comes over. And then if they've got ancillary people and the poll worker says, this is what I see, this is what I think, is this correct? Like this mark was outside the line. It wasn't heavy enough. They clearly were trying to vote for this person. Everybody looks at it and goes, yes, we all agree that that's it. Make sure that 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 vote it didn't count this vote because of bad bad drawing, right? right? So fix yeah, it. None of, none of these systems operate in any sort of vacuum. That's correct. There's no back room where somebody is by themselves with these ballots at any moment in time, other than maybe a bailiff who's with a locked box with that super secret seal on it. Right. Like, it just it doesn't it doesn't happen. And it then. And then if there even is a problem where there's a disagreement, they actually will litigate that right on the spot. 
Like yeah, the Republican right. person says, I think that, that the intent was this. I think the intent was that. And then they have in a process, even if those people can't get together, it moves up the ladder until somebody can ultimately make a decision. It's to the side and then they, you know, come back and revisit those later. So, so again, in this scenario, what they did is so they said, they're like, well, we're not sure. So like, let's check the red, the voter rolls. And they're like, oh, it just so happens that there are two people that have the exact same name, you know, Michael John Smith, right, or something that would be totally possible. They both live in the same district, and those social security numbers match up with those names in the database where we can see. So, but again, that's a situation where there wasn't even, it was just someone recognizing that there might be a problem and thought enough to say, did someone like, right, try to file two ballots under separate socials? Is this the same person? And they go, no, it's not. It's actually two different people, and we're good. You can move along. Those are good, right? And And that's happening like... Oh, yeah. You know, all the time. And it's just really amazing to me as they, you know, get through this process. But again, Bush v. Gore, it's like this, the certification deadline kept get pushing back because they were trying to cure these ballots. And the thing that always made me angry about the Supreme Court decision was because, and I understand to a degree, the logic of at this point, it was 36 days or what I mean, which is, which for... Which is dangerous democratically, right? For us to not be able to solve a problem for that long, especially transition. And there's all kinds of things that have to go along with that. That, you know, because January 20th or whatever it is, or is that it? Is it January 20th? It's coming, right? Like at noon that day, old president out, new president in, right? Um, My problem is, is that the Supreme Court deciding to tell Florida that they could no longer extend the certification deadline actually resulted in a lot of votes being thrown out and for me just and it's an opinion in a democracy and this is what boiled my blood about stop the count and stuff and all those sorts of things is that no government legislative body judicial body or whatever i think should throw out citizens votes yeah right like make I'm like, with you. And like, it's funny because I'm in a different place now than I was in law school when we studied that opinion in constitutional law. Yeah. Uh, and I can remember vehemently arguing with my constitutional law professor, uh, you know, about this very argument because the other uh, the other side is had they continued there was the chance that no vote from Florida would be certified. That was the risk they were running and that mm. was the argument on the other side. Um but I'm I, I'm very much with you now. Um, that's, and I remember now. Remember when I said I had a point and I forgot what it was. <laughs> it was the day after the election the last time. It, the the overwhelming regret that I felt that I had just bailed on this process mm. uh, because I was so disillusioned with my former party. I thought I can't do that again. And then as things started rolling out, it became like playing whack-a-mole. Yep. Like, what am I going to be upset about today? <laughs> uh, and so I picked, I, I finally decided like, I'm going to pick one thing that I really want to focus on. And it became the right to vote for as many people as possible. Uh, because fundamentally I'm with you. Like everybody absolutely should have, the right to vote. And this, this leads us into a topic we hadn't touched on, which I think is we, we have to, if we're talking about politics and that's race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
to what to to watch what has happened um, in this country and not and and not believe that there's an issue for people of color to vote it, it you're just wearing blinders you're just not acknowledging the truth that's right in front of your face and i think we had a point i think there was a point when george floyd when we all saw that video i think everybody agreed that that was abhorrent and unacceptable and un-American. And I think that's one of those. Well, most people, not everybody. A, a majority. Yeah. I, think, I, do, I do think a majority of people thought that that was unacceptable. And I think that can be one of our statement of material facts, not in dispute. Like that cannot happen. Right. And like you said, then you get, then you can have arguments about the policy and how we, you know, address it going forward, you can have a valid argument about the best way to, to, to root out systemic racism in our country. But I just don't, you can't say it's not here. Of course not. And I mean, there's so many places it's obvious, like it's so, I mean, and I'll give you one better, like it, it's, it's, um, you know, you, you can, especially, and I know this isn't unique to the South. I mean, that's another thing we get tagged with a lot. I mean, in, in rural areas all over the country, you know, this exists, right? But it you can hear it in the language, right? Like, I we've all known people that have said things. I mean, thank God there was no video cameras in your phones and all that stuff when I was a kid, right? But... Um, you know, and I say it's, it's a, this is, stay with me. This is a bit tangential and we'll see. And like, what are you doing? Like the rotating, um, college cups? Like you got a Vanderbilt cup, you got a Mercer cup. Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) um, exactly. Um, also side note, we don't have to get attended. And I'm sorry. I have to say this just because, but breaking news, I don't know if you saw this, but Alex Trebek just passed away. Oh, no, pancreatic cancer. I know. And that's so hard for me because Jeopardy is such a huge, my wife and I are like loyal Jeopardy watchers. And it's when we get back to a place in our country where we can actually like do other things, pancreatic cancer research has got to be a priority. John Lewis, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Alex Trebek, Sally Ride. (laughs) Well, and also, I mean, as a person that doesn't have a pancreas anymore. And I, I, my mom had a Whipple. Oh, uh, so I'm with you on the whole pancreatic health. It's yeah, a bear. It a is. Bear. And, and it, and people don't realize how much that little organ can, Oof. can wreak havoc. Yeah. Right. I mean, it nearly killed me. Right. So, um, but anyways, sorry. Um, but it's, so another thing is I still, I play video games, right? Like that's still a thing I do. And it's funny because my wife is a little older than I am. And I, our, our age is really the first generation. I think that sort of had access to them our whole life. And I'm yeah. just at the age, I think Atari, you know, I was seven or eight or, you know, it's something like that or five or six. Yeah. <laughs> but even now, if you go and now that all of this online multiplayer where you're playing with strangers and other people, and you can generally communicate with them because they're team-based games or whatever, you would not believe, I mean, the things that you hear, you know, in that and the things that people like, so I just tell people, like, if you don't believe that racism still exists in this country at a crazy level, and this isn't also black, white, this is anti-Semitism. This is, you know, this is, uh, um, you know, lots of, um, uh, you know, misogyny or sexism, right? Like 
go get onto your kid's Xbox, log in as them, jump into a game with strangers, play for 20 minutes, and listen to the things that people say. And these are 15-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 40-year-olds, right? And it is a, it is, it's, it will break you down, right? It's so bad that it will make you, and it's almost the opposite effect. And I know this is still in my, I mean, it's still, I don't think it's the majority, but I don't, (laughs) but it's a lot more people than you, than you think, you know? And, and again, like it's sort of this, what you touched on earlier, which is a big thing of mine now that I've sort of personally tried to start committing some study to and reading books is just these concepts of tribalism, right? And, and there's a lot of good books out about it. I want to encourage everyone to go find one. Just Google tribalism and look for any number of and, you know, but try to find a person that's, you know what I mean, got a PhD or, you know what I mean, <laughs> like someone that's actually qualified to, you know, that's a psychologist or a sociologist, right? But again, it's about brain chemistry, right? And it's a lot of these, and again, it's a, it's a, it's an evolutionary circumstance, right? So this is the, and this is where you get into talking about privilege and stuff. And I know that's a word that just for me saying it, probably half the people that are listening to this, just shut this off. But, um, you, okay. This is the example I give. If I walked into a room and I, and I didn't know anyone, let's say that I went to a, a business mixer or a, you know, something and I'm by myself and I walk into a room and let's say that there are, there are, there are groups and they're all paired off. And over here, I see a bunch of black males with um, their pants hanging a little low and, you know, jewelry and all that sort of stuff. Then next to them, I see a group of women that, you know, are maybe non-binary or binary and, you know, sort of look like they're not very feminine. And then next to them, I see a group of Asian guys wearing, you know, bike jackets, you know what I mean? And like motorcycle. And then the fourth group I see is a bunch of white dudes in khakis with (laughs) golf shirts on. And I've got to find a place to go when I don't know anyone. I am going to go to the group of white dudes in khakis. Not because I'm a bad person, but your brain will break down visual input before you know anything else and then make a normal evolutionary decision of saying, where am I most likely to be safe? Right. It's going to be there, right? Those people look like me right now i don't think that is evil is inherently bad it's an evolutionary trait however when you take that one half step farther and start to believe that you have your superior or that you right like that your group is on a different level and there's not equality between the groups that is where the evolutionary normal bit stops and the bad bit starts, right? Yep. And yep. people have to recognize that it's okay to say, I'm most comfortable here. But then they've got to say, but I've got to recognize that I may not be safer with that group. And it's, and it's incumbent upon me then to figure out past the visual. Right. The, right. ide- the ideological, the, that's where we start to really do whatever. And f- for me, I'm really fortunate, again, to have a wife and a culture that's radically different from mine and a, and a group of people that is treated amazingly poorly globally now and historically. Um, and, you know, one of my dear friends is an African-American guy who's really involved in um, because he's a prominent 
guy. I mean, he is a he's a Broadway director. He's won a Tony Award. He he's a black man in a world that doesn't have a lot of black men at that level. And he's really active in, you know, in that universe about equality and, you know, that sort of thing. And he and I have had a lot of front porch talks. And, you know, what's amazing now is, is it's almost at a point where it's kind of flipped where I don't know visually where my safest group is. And I don't know that I would gravitate because when you started, when you started saying, when you started telling that story, I started to interrupt and say, I think I'm going somewhere. Well, but that's the thing, right? Like, so, but, but again, and those groups could be interchangeable, but, but you know, it goes back to an overarching thing that he and I have talked about a lot is it's super easy to hate what you don't know. It's incredibly hard to hate something when you know this has been, and you know, I'm a huge gay rights person as well like we have so many friends that are gay right and most people i know that are very homophobic don't actually know any gay people and i'm like well of course it's you know demonizing a a, a in person is so different than demonizing from afar right and 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 i will even take that a step farther with some of my friends that are or acquaintances that are extremely left, mm-hmm. like just demonizing someone because oh. they're conservative. Oh yeah. It's that's, like, that's huge. And that was after the last election, that was one of my biggest things was to not demonize people that voted for Trump simply because they voted for Trump. There might be plenty of other reasons, <laughs> but the fact that alone that they voted for Trump, is not enough because we have to give those people some space to change their mind. We need to normalize people learning and growing and changing their mind. And if you come at them telling them all the reasons they're wrong, their back's going to get up, they're going to get defensive and they're not going to be, you know, that's not a dialogue that Mm -hmm. doesn't work. Um, Going back, one other point I thought about, I actually was thinking about that, thinking about this this morning, you went to public school, right? Yes. So you and I both grew up in a pretty small town, going to public school. We had one high school in Moultrie. Um, so, you know, we went to, we went to school with African-American kids our whole lives. Part of what I think I've come to understand about white privilege is people it's not so much that we thought, and maybe this is just me speaking for my own personal growth. I never thought I was better than any of my African-American classmates. I certainly thought they had the same opportunities I did and that they didn't, they just didn't take advantage of it. Like I did. I thought that for a long time, it took me doing study abroad in law school in the Czech Republic and actually studying the uh, Constitution in the Czech Republic for me to understand and be able to see it from a different point of view that they didn't have the same opportunities I had. I had two parents who were teachers and were home and were, you know, getting up with me to study at five in the morning. Like they didn't have that. Um, and so I think that's a misunderstanding of white privilege is people say, oh, no, I, I, you know, I don't think I'm better than them. I just think they didn't work as hard as I did. And it's not about effort, right? Like, that's yeah, the thing. And, and one of the only times I've ever cracked the veneer of a discussion with someone that's sort of polar opposite 
politically than me about that is going, listen, the word privilege now is just triggery, right? It's going to, it's a triggery word, but I just would chat. I challenge you to think about it this way. It's an easier way to consume it. It's not something that you should be ashamed of. It's not, it's not something that is indicting your level of effort. Think about it as just, it's the advantage of being in the majority, right? Like as a man, you have privilege. It's not just about race, right? Because we still have income inequality when it comes to men versus women. I mean, again, I saw a great, you know, you know, and people think this is hilarious, but you know, or people that look at me and say, oh, liberal guy, but someone posted a, a, a post on Facebook that I thought was genius. And you know, the emojis, right? It was however many we've got 46, 45 yeah. old white guy faces and then a brown woman face. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Like, think about that. Like, think about the fact that we're at a point in our country where that's never happened before in 2020. Right. right? Like, it's an extraordinarily ridiculous, you know, thing. Right. If you really just think about it logically. But again, the advantage of the majority and also within our country, then that's true all over the world. Right. Because, you you know, there's the privilege is going to exist with the majority. That's how it works. Because it goes back to what I said before about what you see you're more comfortable with that flows into hiring, right? That flows into like when you see someone in an interview, if they look like you or they don't, right? Those things, that, that evolutionary instinct applies across the board, right? And it's the same thing if I see, if I'm a man and I see a woman, right? It's, it's, or if I say I'm white and I see a black person or if I'm, you know, whatever. But the, the idea that, in 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 a country where our original sin is slavery, right? It's the yep. it is it is the black mark for all of the amazing things that America is, and yep. it is that is our horrible past. The one thing that you know. But for me, it's like just think about something as simple as access to education, and the idea of the head start. That your group, and this is again white men, white women, like and 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 women. So so granted, women got there a little earlier than right. people of color, right. right? But still, white dudes, we've been able to go to school and own land and vote and do all of this stuff forever for as long as the country's been around. Well, you know, then we had to wait, you know, a hundred and something years before women could participate in the process and then you had to wait another well really you would say a lot of people like to point at lincoln and that was a big move but then you had to fast forward to the 1965 (laughs) and then you got to literally go a hundred years further and now we're only 60 years from now right so generationally like but again of course the educated then own everything then run everything and then because of this natural evolutionary instinct, right. To group with like people, you know, then you start to you, you again. And I don't think it was necessarily evil. Sometimes it was evil, but most of the time it just becomes a natural thing where, and, and the point is, is like balancing the scale and our good friend, David Abney, who's went to school with us. One of the ways he describes it, which I think is great is, is like, if you imagine as a pendulum, right. The pen, if, if we're trying to get it dead down the middle, the pendulum was swung way over here and the reality is is it's very hard to gradually move it back down towards the middle it's going to probably have to swing hard the other direction in order to get it to eventually settle down right into the middle which is where we want where it's equal opportunity equal exposure equal access all these sorts of things and then forget 
I think that applies to our politics too, Sean. That kind of gets back to us feeling like we don't have a home anywhere. Yeah. It. I think, you know, I, I think we're best somewhere there in the middle. And 100%. I think that, but Dave, imagine that. Dave's exactly right. Although he goes by David now. David, he? indeed. He's, David. He's, uh, yeah, he's exactly right. You can't just move it till it gets in the middle. You got to head swing for the fences the other way in order to get it there. But that's, and, and also, that's, well, people are like, oh, you're dim now. Well, yeah, I am because somebody's got to do something about what's going on. Well, and the reality, too, is, is, is that in order to make up the difference. Yeah, yeah. Right. So if a car's driving down the road at 60 miles an hour, right, like white men <laughs> and the and other cars are stopped. That's where we were originally. Like they didn't even have a car. They were just yeah. standing. Yeah. Right. And if the journey is whatever, then all of a sudden you let those cars behind you run at 20 miles an hour. Right. Yep. The yep. only way you can get those cars to where they're now driving next to each other is the cars behind you have to run at 100 miles an hour for a while while this car still runs at 60 in order to let them even out. And that's where you guess what them running at 100 miles an hour isn't holding the, the 60 mile per hour car. He's still making the same progress. Exactly right. And but that's where you get into things like and where people bristle is like affirmative action or these programs, you know, where you're dumping money into like Head Start or, you know, these sorts of things. It's like, look, that's not about that's not about damaging white people. Right. That's about somehow you got to make up the distance that exists between like if you really believe that we're all equal. Well, guess what, man? You've been running for 200 years. I love that, Sean. You know, and everybody else hasn't. So yeah. how, you got to let them catch up. And yeah. then when we feel like we're, and we're never going to get there. That's the other thing too. There's always going to be this sort of rotating, right? No matter what, but for a while it's probably gonna, you know, and unfortunately maybe the price of your 200 years of dominance is sometimes you're going to like in, 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 a, in the war is you're going to have to basically sacrifice a battle or two. Right. Right. Which well, is, but my other favorite, uh, analogy I've seen about this is, you know, it's not pie. <laughs> That's exactly right. Somebody else getting, you know, more rights doesn't take anything away from you. I mean, to go back to your analogy, if the car's running at 60 and you let the other cars go at a hundred to catch up, that car's still going at 60. It's still making the same progress. You're just giving somebody else a boost to catch up and it's not pie. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Um, but to your point, like, I, and, and I, reality is too, is like, I've even gotten now to where I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a registered Democrat. I, I, I don't really want to be associated because I think now they are, to be honest, they're falling victim to the same things that I don't like on the other side. It, it absolutely happens on both sides. And, it really does. and it's, and you know, for me, it's like, listen, I, at the risk of sounding arrogant, like I'm a fairly bright guy. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm a fairly measured and intelligent person, right? Like, I have opinions that I that that. <laughs> that that I've that I've formulated on my own. And why can't I believe that gay people should be equal in the eyes of the law and 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 be offered the same legal advantage that everyone else is, whether it's around marriage or which is really just a legal contract about transfer of 
ownership and medical proxy. And, you know, that's all it really is. Like, I mean, the religious angle of marriage is a totally different thing, right? I'm talking about just the legal construct, Um, you know, and also believe that, you know, people of color are at a massive disadvantage from a history of these terrible things. And we have problems we need it and also go, but I'm also an entrepreneur and kind of a free market guy. Like, you know, and not kind of like, I, again, like, and at the same time, believe that just like pure socialism, pure capitalism is equally destructive. Like if you didn't have someone overseeing companies will, again, when you're so, when your mission, and again, I'm not demonizing this, but when your mission mission is a pursuit of profit, or of shareholder value, right? There's no moral or, right? Like in a vacuum, there's no moral or ethical constraint to that, right? We've seen this, the cigarette industry, right? Right. They know shit will kill you, right? But they didn't care because they were doing what companies do, which is trying to make money. And I'm not demon, I mean, again, I think that there is a more, you know, the people that made those decisions, I could say, oh my God, how could your conscience not jump in and go, you know, what the heck? But that's why you have, the FDA and congressional oversight committees and all these things, because they're protecting it for both angles. And that's why people like to talk about how we're capitalist and we are more capitalist than everyone else in the history of the world. But this is a hybrid economy, right? We have found a balance. We've struck a balance between socialist, socialistic ideas and capitalistic ideas and put them together in a beautiful harmony, right? To where, Things can generally, we have freedom, things can generally driven by the market, but we have mechanisms that help protect us that we can't do for ourselves and we rely on the government. Like, newsflash, defense is socialistic, right? Because pre, you know, at the time of the country, it wasn't. I mean, it was a little because it was, but at the time, the federal government was a standing army. And they said the reason, the way we're going to defend ourselves is, is all you states need to maintain your own defense. And then if we call you up, it's incumbent upon you to come. That's why you hear about in the civil war, the Massachusetts, you know, the, the 20, the Massachusetts 25th and like all these different, because they were state armies. Consolidating that into a big ass federal government initiative is a, is government control of defense. Right. Right. Is that better? Of course it is because it's better for all of us that we're in a situation where China can't just pull up to a boat to Georgia Right, take Georgia right. over and North Carolina and Kentucky and Alabama go, well, Savannah's not my port. Sorry. So, you know, we'll worry about it if they get to the Oak Mulgee or if they get to the Chattahoochee and right. get close. That's the whole idea. It's, that, it's the whole pendulum thing again, too. You know, it's and I think what we have to work on is becoming, you know, we've I think we've gotten to a point where most people will agree that part of being a good citizen is voting. Right. Right. I think what we have to figure out for ourselves, too, is we've got to learn how to responsibly consume media. And we've got politics have become sort of like college football. <laughs> like a little bit. you're an Auburn fan or you're an Alabama fan. And by God, you cannot cross over. Forget it. And politics is not football. It right. should not be football. And so we've got to get out of that mentality of being on one team or the other. Cause I think the majority of Americans are agree that the best place to be is, you know, somewhere in the middle with our, with our pendulum. And so part of what we've got to do ourselves 
is become aware of that and work on our own biases so that we can all sort of aim for, for where we want to go. Um, and it's, you know, it's going to take some work. That's real, real obvious As, after, after watching the president-elect speech last night where he, you know, said we're not enemies and I'm going to be everybody's president and then reading people's reactions to it on Facebook. It just is real obvious that we've got some work to do. Sure. <laughs> So I would assume that you probably still have friends and people that are involved either professionally or, you know, in government. I do. Um, So this is what I want to know just because it's changed. Um, Sorry, my computer's making alert noises. Um, (laughs) Being inside the, the beltway, right. And inside of the process, it, how was does the level of contention exist between congressional members and staffers like it does between citizens no then and, ver- and, and has it yeah. and has Go it ahead. changed and has it changed right so again when you were in it right i feel like we weren't as at an at your throat kind of thing right yeah. and then and i don't and, and do you based on the people you know do you think it's any different now Um, no, it was not like that. Um, yes, it has changed. Um, you know, I think about things like the, the, the Georgia state society, um, which is really just sort of a networking tool. Every state has a, has their own society. And, you know, we, we all served on that board together. Um, our bosses, you know, met every week. Um, you know, Republicans and Democrats, the Georgia delegation got together every week and had a you know meeting to talk about what was going on. It's that, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Um, and I don't, you know, most of my friends, most of my contemporaries have moved on, you know, they're now like Georgia state Supreme court justices and <laughs> yeah. head, head of this, you know, the commissioners of things. Um, so I don't have a lot of inside baseball knowledge of of the Hill now, but just based on what I read and, and that sort of thing, it's, it's not like, again, it's like, you know, an Auburn fan going and rooting for Alabama. If you even have a discussion and that's, we got, we got to get out of our silos. It's just, it's not a healthy, not a healthy place to be. Yeah, it brings me back to, you know, you mentioned earlier and I meant to say about McCain. I mean, what's funny is, is that believe it or not, like I was fully prepared to vote for John McCain in that first election because I didn't know anything about Barack Obama. Right. Like I, I, I heard his keynote at the DNC and I was like, wow, that was something right. Like you could. But he was a kid, basically. He was. I mean, you could tell he's a star, but he's not very experienced. Like, you know, he hasn't been, I mean, he's been in the game for a while and not that he's not qualified, but it's like, okay, he's young and, you know, like, you know, he's a great speaker, but not sure. But, you know, McCain to me, it was just like, okay, that that's a middle of the road conservative. I'm generally not probably a conservative, but, you know, he's worked on campaign finance reform and he's, you know, he's a guy that is sort of universally respected and those sorts of things. And I'm like, and to your point, like, I was like, oh my God, like, what have you done? You have, you have made it so I can't vote for you because I cannot put that woman one bad heart away from the presidency. Right. 
And that's what that's what moved me is quite literally the selection of Sarah Palin for the VP seat is what cost his vote for me. Right. Like some Palin was really the start of Trumpism. For sure. Like that that populism, that the show quality to politics, like politics are not entertainment. I've always found them entertaining because I'm a dork. Yeah, wonk. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean. Tim Baker and I used to sit at the bar at Daryl's and talk politics all night, <laughs> but we're weird people. Uh, it should not be, it should be boring. We should not wake up every morning wondering what in the world happened while we were sleeping on Twitter. Like it should be status quo. So yeah, that, that really, it's, it's funny that that was your inflection point too. I just, I was going to vote. Here's, here's the thing. I always played on voting for Obama so I could say I had, yeah, uh, but the, all the commentary was, "Oh, Georgia may flip blue." <laughs> mm, right, hilarious. Only, only took a few more years for it, right. but I couldn't. I had to vote for McCain because I didn't want to be the one that flipped Georgia blue. There you go. There you go. I mean, and it's and it's funny because like you almost wondered too. Like, I would give anything to sit down with Steve Schmidt for a couple hours. Right. I mean, I know that there has been movies, and you know, and I know now he's a. You know he's an he's an analyst and he does some other things and Lincoln. yes and so for those of you who don't know Steve Schmidt is the was the campaign manager for McCain and was it's well do, there's movies about it but well documented about the process of and not vetting her properly and just sort of they got caught and you know the other thing that makes me crazy where why I, I dislike a lot of it political parties on both sides is is that um, and you know we've even seen it with Joe Biden um, is that where once they become the nominee and get into the process, the party forces them to run out of their own um, conviction, right? It's like, you got to run to the side of the, like the, the extreme, like, and we've seen in his rhetoric, like, here's what's funny. And this is what I've told my conservative friends that are all, you know, beleaguered at this point is like, look, man, I think a lot of the stuff he's talking about, and I don't mean like what I do believe in about, you know, not our enemies and whatever. But I think when it comes to pure policy, Joe Biden is not a radical, like he's as moderate as you get, right? That's why he got the domination. I mean, but you know, you saw him run to the left because he's in a situation where you're like, well, you know, if the Bernie bros and the Elizabeth Warren crowd, I need them to show up or I can't win. So I got to throw some bones, right? I got to throw out some bones that'll get those people. And you've seen that on the other side, obviously much more extreme. And again, I don't even know that it made him run. Trump, obviously. And the funny thing is, is I don't even know if it was a run to the right. It was just a run to a place we've never seen before. But, you know, but, you know, that to me just is really, and I think that's what we saw in 2016. And I do feel like, you know, is like, you're never probably, well, not probably, you will never get a candidate. It's, you're not going to get a ticket that lines up, right? Like down the board, like, oh my gosh, like. That's, that's, that's another one of my favorite memes was, uh, you're not, you know, picking a husband, you're picking the bus. Yeah. Take the bus is going to get you as close as where, to where you want to go. So, you know, so, but then you get these people that go, well, if you're not going to be exactly what I want, then I'm either going to just vacate, right? And not participate. Or even sometimes this weird sort of self sabotage thing, you know, oh, which yeah. is like, not only that, I'm going to derail, 
like the person that's closest to me. And to your point, like, will get me at least into the right five block radius. It won't take me to my front door. Right. Versus the other people are going to take me to another city. Yeah. Right. And just the idea of just derailing that whole entire, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to emulate. I'm going to be like the monk. I'm going to go on the street and just set myself on fire. Yeah. You know what I mean? What'll be really interesting to watch coming up, assuming that all the votes are certified and the electrical, (laughs) electrical college votes the way (laughs) the, the, uh, popular vote demands and Biden is elected is uh, inaugurated. What will be interesting to watch going forward is uh, whether Pelosi stays um, like that. There'll be some infighting with Mm -hmm. that. Um, You know, there's always, there's always that, that sort of stuff going on um, in internally as well as what we see between the parties. Yeah. I just, it's, it gets back, Sean, to the whole, like, some of that's good. Some of that, you know, it, there needs to be that sort of blowback to get any sort of movement. Um, but it's hard. That's one of the, I mean, like, I will say that's something I really admired about Saxby. You know, I grew up in Moultrie, and I knew Saxby my whole life. Saxby and Julianne did a, you may remember, Julianne did a commercial, and mm-hmm. uh old Jim Marshall made fun of her for it where she said Saxby still just Saxby. So true. I mean, Saxby was Saxby. Um, and that's rare. That's rare. Um, I think a lot of, and I don't know, I don't know this, but just my whole thing with, uh, Kelly Loeffler, mm-hmm. I think she has really gotten consumed with the power and the fun of being a senator and being in Washington. And I think it's really sort of fundamentally changed who people knew her to be. Um, and that happens a lot. You see that a lot. And so, you know, it, it, it's hard to find the kind of person who can stand firm um, and what they think is all right. Saxby did it. He it was a huge vote. Um, that was going to be really hard for the farmers and, you know, by God, he wasn't going to, wasn't going to take a vote that was going to hurt the people who sent him to, you know, sent him to Washington, even if it was against the party. Um, but you just don't, you don't see that a lot anymore. Yeah. And I think the challenge, and this is where the media part comes in is that, and we obviously see this in, you know, very much so with Trump and it's a challenge of the electorate more so than it is a challenge of the, the candidates or the, you know, the, the, representatives is that this element of celebrity that now has come along, you know, and this idea that it's the glamor of it and the, you so know, much more than it used to be. For I mean, sure. because it's to your point, like I, I would hope that it should more be more about people that are willing to do the work, not people that believe it's a thing for them to get famous or get, you know what I mean? And, and that's that again, when you just like a, the ratings culture and you know, all that sort of stuff is that, <clears throat> is a really hard part. Um, yeah. But, you know, and I do see people that still kind of grind it out, you know, I mean, like representatives and those sorts of people. But to your point, like I think, and you, and that's why I think a lot of people you've seen hitch themselves to the Trump wagon, you know, that like Kelly Leffler and some others is it's, you know, it's less about, I mean, I don't know this, maybe I'm wrong, but I, th- I feel like it's less about really what her ideological positions are 
and more about the ability to grab onto the thing you think that'll carry you the farthest rather than actually representing your convictions and your constituency. Right. Which is, which is really what it should be about. Um, But, you know, we live in a, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Like we live in a culture where one of the most popular television shows is one where a dude gets together with 20 women and tries to, you know, find his wife right on a TV show in like in, in 10 weeks. Right. Like that's, that's a, I mean, I I blame the politicians <clears throat> for caving, but really I blame us because it's yeah, 100%. they are a reflection. I've said that. I've said that a lot on Facebook, too. They are a reflection. Rare is the politician who acts in a way that he or she doesn't believe his constituency wants them to. That's just that doesn't exist. And um, it, so they are absolutely a reflection of what we are. And again, having been around the man and living near his district and watching his career, it's one of the reasons why John Lewis is. For so long, he, you know, he was who he was. He never changed. And yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. No, you're fine. (laughs) I mean, but that's the point is like, you know, again, that guy, like the strength of his conviction was his primary weapon like that his thing was like this is what i believe and this is what i believe my constituents believe because that's why they put me here yeah and i am going to without fail do what's best and, for them and even at my own peril mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do that you know and it's like wait yeah, those, those are the politicians we remember you know those are the ones who leave their mark that's what you know that's what we should all aspire to for sure. And I've made this comparison all the time. And this is like, to me, like, you know, and and I, and I understand that's the thing is Trump is such an anomaly. It's like in Malcolm Gladwell speak, like he's the outlier of all outliers, right? Like for good gosh, (laughs) I mean, but you know, one thing I tell people a lot because they think when I go after him, it's about, it's about political conviction. And, and the funniest thing is I've actually never, even discuss policy about him because it's not about policy. It's about him, the human, right? Like policy either, but but, a hundred percent, but this is what's funny is what I've said all along is like, there's almost not a single policy position. George W. Bush took that. I believe that I was for right. Mm -hmm. Short of, what I think most people say, and it's a little trite, but you know, I do think that in the wake of nine 11, he did an incredibly admirable job, but his personality is kind of built for that, right? Like he's the guy that you're like, this guy, he was the compassionate conservative. He's the guy that makes you feel like he's, it's going to be all right. You know what I mean? That's like what, that was his whole thing was he was going to be the compassionate conservative. I was so excited for George. Sean, I was so excited, but anyway, but, but the, here's the thing. I didn't agree with much, if not all of his policy, Right. but I never, never thought for a minute that George Bush did anything to try and glorify George Bush. Even yeah. though I didn't agree with him, I believed he was a patriot. I believed he loved the country. I believed he was trying to make the best decision he could make that was in the best interest of everyone. I, again, my biggest flaw with him was, was I think that he didn't put enough people around him that could maybe advise him as well as he, you know, to get a, 
a a a a broader you know a wider and accurate <laughs> yeah a wider path of people around him which is where i do think actually that, that was something that i thought barack obama did very well which is you have some Republicans, you have some people that aren't just your buddies from Chicago. You actually expand your universe and get some people that can challenge you in the room and say, wait a second. But I never questioned Bush's um, intention, right? Like I always thought it's like, I hate his decision, but I don't think it's self-aggrandizing. I don't think he's trying to do this to make himself look good. I think he he thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, as uninformed as sometimes I thought that was. Yeah, um, yeah. totally different with what we had the last four years where I think it was exactly the opposite. Like, I think it was very much not about the people at all. It was about how can I glorify myself? How can I, you know, and unfortunately though, with Trump and, and again, I'm not, I'm not picking on him, but to your point, I think that is starting now to trickle down to the layers of government below where now you're getting senators and Congress people that are starting to do that. And it's like, look, man, this is not about you being more popular. Right. Like and I don't mean popular in a voting sense. I mean, in where you can throw a rally and get your dopamine hits, because when you walk on a stage, a bunch of people lose their minds because, you know, you called somebody a name or, you know, whatever. That's what we got to avoid. I mean, honestly, is we're looking at and, you know, again, and not to pick out, you know, pointing at Democrats or whatever. But, you know, and I know people that talk about how bad they hate her. And I understand. But if you look at Stacey Abrams. You just got to think about this tactically. This is what happened. Um, she's served most of her life when nobody knew she was you know, out there doing the work. She ran for governor. There were some things that people could have gotten equally upset about, about how that all went down. Right. And a lot of the things, but it happened. She moved on. And then at that point, people wanted her to run for an office. And she said, nah, I think that I, what I see is, is that we need to, we need our message needs to get spread. And I think I can do that in a better way. And over the course of the last two years, she, from what I've seen, is she has registered somewhere around 800,000 people to vote. Yeah. I mean, so you want to talk about people that are willing to get in the, like, again, whether you agree with her politics or not, that's fine. That's not, but, and here's the thing, not just, I'm going to go try to register people to vote that I think agree with me. I'm going to create an organization that's like, if you're not registered to vote and you're not voting in Georgia, you need to go vote. Yeah. And I'm going to provide services and I'm going to give you education and I'm going to help you understand how I do that. And frankly, if the vote comes through and we recount and it doesn't shift, and I don't think it will enough to matter, it's entirely plausible that you could say that on her work alone, she flipped a state that hasn't gone blue since 92. Yep. And, yeah, I, and think that's, I don't think that's hyperbole at all. And who, how many people can say, like, who's willing to go out and do the work? That's the difference in Stacey Abrams and me. I sat here on my bed. It was really sad and thought I'm really going to like register. You know, I'm going to work on saving people's right to vote. And Stacey Abrams went out and registered 800. <laughs> I did some work for the you know, Democratic Party, helping people cure their ballots. But <laughs> yeah, well, look, man, everybody. I mean, it's better than people that don't. And I, I could be, do more and be more. And it's sort of those you know things. But it's just a we've got you know, we've got work to do and I just hope that people can, you know, try to remember that it's okay that it's emotional, but you've got at some point reason has got to start to 
play into the game. And that's both sides. This is not just a, a conservative thing, right? This is both sides of the aisle. And we've got to figure out how to, because here's the thing, everybody loves to talk about how, you know, like how businesses work. Well, you can't, I mean, in the business world, you, this level of contention <laughs> and you've got to compromise and you've got to make decisions often that you don't want to make in order for everything to survive. And, yeah. you know, that's just a, just a hard reality of it all. Um, it's, you were asking about former uh, colleagues. I was actually uh, Facebook messaging with one last night. Um, and he like he always likes to just come in and tease me and be a rabble rouser. But then we really started having an honest conversation last night. And my favorite line was, "There is nothing wrong with compromise." That's right. You know, I think we really have to to get back to to believing that uh, and working towards that. Well, what's the old um, platitude? Is like if you are in a situation where you have to negotiate. And both sides don't leave a little bit pissed off. You, yep. ha- you haven't been successful. That's right. Every every mediation I've ever been to, that's what the mediator, that's what the mediator tells us. So. And another important quote that you gave me the other day from one of my favorite television shows all, of all time <laughs> and of Raylan Givens, the, the great and powerful Tim Oliphant of uh, Justified is if in the morning you meet an asshole Run into an asshole in the morning, you ran into an asshole. You run into assholes all day, you're the asshole. That's exactly right. And it's the age old thing of like poker, right? If you sit down at a card table and in about half hour you can't figure out how this who the sucker is, <laughs> you're him. Yep. Right. Well, look, I've taken a ton of your time. We I could talk about this forever. Um yep. and because I appreciate again for me, it's like just the ability to sanely engage it's something that i think people need to do and to your point i do think we we can't it's like no you shouldn't not talk about politics you should talk about them but you should do it sanely and respectfully um and i'm trying so much harder to do that now than i ever have before and you've always done that and i love that about you and uh, i'm not always successful but <laughs> well but look, I do try. all we can do is give our level best so thank you so much um for your time you it was so fun. I'm so, so proud of you for doing this. I think this is great. I'm so glad that you're here and healthy. Thank you. Me too. Yeah. It was a touch and go there for a minute, but uh, let's do this again. I, I've, I've actually, since I've started doing this, you, you've always been one of those people in my mind is like, I got to get her on, got to get her on. And it just, once this all went down, I just like, now's the, the timing is right. Like now is the time for us to have this conversation. Let's do to have our next one. Let's film it, uh, together at, uh, at a bar. Yes. I'm all for it. I'm all for (laughs) it. And and all the tangential characters we reference. <laughs> exactly. And like I said, we need it. We teased it. But um, if uh, Dr. Wilson happens to listen to this, we've uh, always joked about yes. our, our summit with uh, Rick Wilson. Um, yes. When 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 all this COVID crazy is over, we should all convene. Um, and he should get credit for us at being able to, to have some civil conversations because we sure learned at his feet. No, no doubt. And a guy that, and just so for you that don't know, he's a, he's a religion professor at Mercer. And again, for a guy that is in an area where is extremely dogmatic, just in, by definition, in nature, one of the most open-minded and civil humans you'll ever, and compassionate people you'll ever meet, right? Just someone that's, the marketplace of ideas is, is something that we absolutely have to have, right? And, and there needs, to your point, there needs to be tension, right? But it, it just needs to be healthy, 
you know, yeah. we've had a lot of unhealthy tension. We need to get back to a point where people have different ideas, but we can get together and have them without wanting to rip each other's throats out. And yeah. that's where I you, I hope we're on that road. No doubt. Well, um, thanks again. Stick around for one second. I'm going to close this out. Um, thanks everybody. Um, obviously you can always, um, find me on Twitter. It's at Sean ATL. Um, uh, TMIPod.com is the website. You can send me a message if you want, if you have questions or if you want to follow up on something, um, I can certainly get them over to Mandy as well. But, um, and if you're in Florida and need some legal work, um, (laughs) Caldwell law 38 is your, uh, is your place to go, but don't call her for election, um, (laughs) advice, um, whatever. So thanks everybody for sticking around. You guys are the best. Um, We will be back around at some time in the future. And until next time, press on. 